The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today I'm joined by three exceptional women. My co-host is Rosemary Banyard, the renowned UK mid and small cap fund manager. I've known Rosemary for over 20 years. She worked for many years at Schroeder's and then decided to make a change and move to an investment boutique. She now runs the Downing Unique Opportunities Fund, in which I have a personal investment. We're joined by Julie Lavington and Ali Hall, co-founders and co-CEOs of online women's wear brand, Sosanda. Julie and Ali launched Sosanda after a decade of working together in women's magazines, where they identified a gap in the market for female fashion. Since its IPO in 2017, only a year after launch, Sosanda has dramatically grown its top line, with the brand now carried by third parties such as M&S, Next and John Lewis. Julie and Ali demonstrate real teamwork, self-belief and a determination to become an international household name. As Ali says, failure is not an option. In today's episode, we learn how skills learnt in the media world lend themselves to the launch of an online retail fashion brand, how to manage a growing business in the face of global logistics uncertainty, and how genuinely open communication can make having co-CEOs a real positive, including being able to share text messages during sleepless nights of worry. Please enjoy our conversation with the Mavericks, Julie and Ali of Sassanda. Hi, Julie and Ali. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can we start by each of you just telling us a bit about your background, how you met? What was the light bulb moment behind the launch of Sassanda? I'll start with my background, um, Sally. I was born and grew up in Cheshire. I did an English degree at Liverpool University and following that I did a short stint on local newspapers training to be a journalist. I moved to London in my early 20s as I got a job on a women's magazine which is the area I wanted to go into. I became editor of that magazine at 25 and following that I then became editor of and relaunched various women's magazines including Bliss, More magazine, And then I was headhunted by Time Inc. to launch a new women's fashion magazine, which became Look Magazine. And that is where Julie and I met. So I'm Julie. I also was born and grew up in the Northwest, but in Lancashire. I did modern languages at Durham University, French and Spanish, and immediately moved to London after that. I started off selling classified advertising space in magazines like Woodworker, Electronics Today International, the real glamorous end of magazine publishing. Then over a number of years, I worked my way up through advertising manager to be publishing director. And I worked on and ran lots of different magazines from women's magazines to TV listings. I also was then headhunted by Time Inc. to become the publishing director of the magazine that was to become Look. And as Ali said, that's when we met each other. So that was in 2006. So before Sassanda, Julie and I had worked together for 10 years on Look. So we've actually worked together for like 16 years now. We launched and ran Look magazine, which was the UK's biggest fashion magazine. So I was on the creative side as the editor. And as Julie said, she was the publishing director. She, so she was on the commercial side. 
And it was while we were there that we spotted an opportunity for an e-commerce brand for women who basically graduated from fast fashion. The customer still really wanted very fashionable clothing, but this woman was now looking for really good quality, really good fit, and also lifestyle appropriate clothes as our customer tends to be in the 30 plus bracket. And she's also looking for a mid price point. So Julie and I had seen umpteen e-commerce businesses launching targeting the 18 to 30 market, but no one was really targeting this woman in the 30 plus market. It was really a wide open market. So to cut a really long story short and making it sound a lot easier than it was, we raised 2 million capital. We left our jobs in October 2015 and we basically started the next day in my spare room in London at the time with post-its on all the walls. It was a real true startup. And then we thought, right, we better get on with it now. And we started. So Sandra is not about an age, really. It's about more of an attitude. We're targeting women who've outgrown fast fashion, but that woman can be any age. What the woman wants is to be chic, sexy and fashion forward. And she's looking for really great quality and fit from her clothing and also a mid-level price tag. So a dress that Sasanda would be on average about £75. Could I nip in then and ask if you could give us a sense of who you think your closest competitors are in that space? I think it's difficult because we don't have a direct competitor because all our product is designed in-house, so it's entirely unique. It's product that you can't buy anywhere else, which I think has been evidenced as well by the fact that we're selling so well with third parties, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about later. And the reason that we're selling so well through third parties as well as on our own site, I think, is because our product range is so unique. So as Ali said, it's very fashion forward, the product. So we always follow the latest fashions. It's very fresh. It's very new all the time. The product always feels really exciting. We have new clothing coming in all the time. But we absolutely focus on really great, great quality and great fit. And it's that combination of those two things that customers were finding it very difficult to find. So I guess you've kind of got the fast fashion e-commerce brands at one end of the spectrum where women might tend to go for the very fashion forward product, but everything's too short or the fit isn't great. Or you've got slightly more classic clothing, I suppose you would call it, which does focus on great quality and great fit, but doesn't tend to be the new in product doesn't come so thick and fast. It's not following trends quite so much. We sit in an area that really didn't exist. And that was our vision for Sasanda. And that's what's proved to be the opportunity of sitting between those two worlds. So it's very difficult to say who our competitors are. People who shop with us will shop also potentially in a variety of different places. And that could be anywhere from ASOS to Marks and Spencers. I'm imagining you both got similar backgrounds in understanding the fashion market, seeing the opportunity. I assume you needed to acquire other skill sets quite quickly in that process? From our backgrounds, working on big selling weekly magazines, the thing with magazines is while it's corporate, it's also very entrepreneurial. So running look really is the example that Ali and I have working together is we built a business there that literally was a blank piece of paper. Look didn't exist. And we came up with the concept and we launched that together. And 
we built the entire team and the concept that was look had never been done before in terms of doing a weekly fashion magazine that was very much about the high street. Look was very revolutionary because we very much championed the high street. We weren't a designer fashion brand. So we did something entirely different. So it was very entrepreneurial in the sense that every, you know, every single week a magazine is a blank piece of paper and we had to execute a new product every single week. It went to press on a Friday, it was on sale on a Tuesday, and it sold 300,000 copies a week. It was a huge selling magazine. But we did that also within the environment of being in a corporate culture that was very carefully governed. We were very answerable to our board and so on. So we were very used to executing something from scratch. And in a strange way, although we've done something entirely different, it's a retail business, there's been so many similarities doing Sasanda because it's been launching a business, executing something from scratch. It's very fast, having to learn new things, prove a new concept, while also operating within the PLC world where we've got investors who we have to be very open and transparent with. We're very well governed. So there's been so many similarities from our background before, surprisingly so, I think. We have been very successful in a relatively short period of time to grow the revenue, to grow the top line. But until very recently, it seemed to take forever for the profitability to come through. Is that how you've seen it in terms of where you hope to be and where you are today? If you could just address the other challenges on that relatively short journey. So in terms of the business model, so we set out from the word go to build a large scale brand. When Ali and I went into this, we walked out of successful careers in big businesses that we could quite happily have stayed in. But our strategy and our vision right at the beginning was to build a large-scale business. And the people who invested in us at the beginning and believed in us were buying into that, becoming a, you know, a large-scale profitable business. And we always knew that we needed scale in order to be profitable. So it was always the strategy to grow revenue because we needed that scale and big revenue in order to reach profitability. So the kind of shape of the business has been how we've expected it to be in terms of grow the top line revenue, first of all, and then the profitability will come. And obviously, we're really delighted that we are now moving into profitability. We've been profitable every month for the last six months. One of the biggest challenges at the beginning was getting the money in the first place. So many people said to us, you will never raise money for a true startup, you know, an actual blank piece of paper where you haven't proved the concept, you're never going to do it. But we were utterly determined and we built a very, very detailed business plan and an execution plan of how we were going to do it. And we literally did hundreds of presentations everywhere from posh offices in Knightsbridge to church halls in Yorkshire to people's living rooms. We dedicated our lives really for about 18 months out of work, raising money. And we successfully raised £2 million of capital from 40 private investors. We turned down a couple of large investors along the way who wanted to invest, you know, the entire money that we were looking for. I mean, that was a huge, huge challenge. 
One of the other really big challenges has been the supply base. You know, we had a brilliant idea, a brilliant concept, but getting the right suppliers and getting suppliers to believe in us. So at the beginning, when we first started, we knew that we wanted to have a broad range of product. We didn't just want to be a narrow range of product. We wanted to set out our stall from the word go that we were going to be a range retailer selling everything from dresses to shoes to coats. So we started with 80 styles. So we needed quite a large base of suppliers to produce those 80 styles, but we only wanted a very small quantity of product in each. And typically the minimum order quantity for most retailers. At that point, it was still quite unusual to get even small quantities of say 300 per style, because you basically had very large retailers buying tens of thousands of products. And we went out and said, actually, we don't even want 300. We only want 100 or maybe could we only have 50 if you could manage that? And, you know, we persuaded suppliers to work with us. And we kind of had to do the same thing. The same thing that we'd done with investors, we had to sell our story and our vision that if they worked with us at the beginning, we were going to be a large retailer and they would be able to grow with us. And so we did persuade people to work with us. And what's been so gratifying is many of those suppliers that we started with at the beginning are still with us now. And they've really grown their businesses, you know, as Cassandra's grown. We've got a supplier in India who we've worked with right from the beginning. He set up a small sewing room basically for us right at the beginning. And He's grown and built an entire business off the back of Sasanda, which is just is fantastic. I think one of the other real challenges was having a very small team, especially at the beginning, but still every job needs doing. You still need a marketing function. You still need buying. You still need design. But you don't have the money at that point to employ everybody in every department that you need. So I think one of the great things about being two of us was that really we had to do our jobs and other jobs at the beginning. So, you know, we've been marketing, we've been buying team, we've been finance person between us, we've pretty much done every job. But then the benefit of that, obviously, is then you employ people in those areas who are better at it than you. (laughs) And that's what you want. But you understand exactly what you want and exactly what you need. But that's quite tough at the beginning. Is it as simple as you've identified this opportunity and now you're fulfilling that opportunity. Is there anything else you can attribute this achievement to? I think the main thing is having a totally unique product. I mean, product is absolutely everything. So offering something that captures what was missing for the customer and getting that product absolutely right time and time again is absolutely everything for our business. And I think our ability to do that, coupled with our ability to understand at all times our customer behaviour, And also being able to communicate with her by building a brand that she can connect with, not just a retail business. We've built a brand. And I think our experience before in building a brand from scratch and having lots of experience with customer in the media world really helped us here as well. So I think all those things together really are part of why we've achieved what we've achieved. On top of that, you can have all that, but you also need to be able to run all aspects of the business well too. No area can fall down. So I think, again, that goes back to our experience of although we're entrepreneurial, we've combined that entrepreneurial spirit with years of experience with running all aspects of businesses, you know, from managing people to logistics to supply chain, you know, the whole lot. And we've taken all that into this business. 
Can I go back to your suppliers? You've explained very clearly the challenges of getting going and how they've grown with you. But I guess the city will be quite aware of, well, firstly, all the sort of issues with port capacity and freight challenges out there. And also with some fast fashion retailers, maybe somebody like Boohoo, that they've had issues with supply chain in a different way with, if you like, the ethics of that and you know how much people are paid. How do you go about dealing with those kind of issues? We've not had any material impact from the multitude of supply chain challenges that everybody has been faced with over the last two years. So it's not that those challenges have not been there because they are there and everyone's been dealing with a multitude of different challenges. So I think it's been about our ability to navigate the challenges so that they've not had a material impact on the business. It's a combination of lots of things, I think. We are meticulous in our planning and thinking far ahead and thinking through the things that might go wrong and how we would mitigate against those things if they did go wrong. So trying to get on the front foot all the time. Having a very diverse supply base in diverse countries has really helped. So we set out from the get-go not to have all our supply base in one country. So I know, for example, companies that have been very reliant upon China had great difficulties leading up to Christmas because there were boats stuck in China. Because we have got a very diverse supply base in different countries, it's meant that we've been able to mitigate many of those risks because then we're not overly dependent upon one particular country. Although everything is very well planned, we're also very agile. So it's really kind of dialing up and dialing down lots of different levers to just navigate through the constant tsunami that we've all had of different challenges over the last two years, you know, some which have been COVID related and, and some not. And then we're also really well supported by Clipper Logistics, who are our warehouse provider, are absolutely fantastic. And they have really helped us navigate the challenges that we face with COVID. Then on the ethical front, when we started the business at the beginning, the very first person that we employed was a head of sourcing. And the job of that person was not just about finding the factories and getting the quality, but was also about making sure that those factories had the right ethical standards and were factories that we wanted to work with. So it's been absolutely front and centre of our business since the get-go that we want to work with factories who share our ethical standpoint in treating their workers well. An issue for online retailers particularly, the question of returns. How easy is it to predict that? Because I guess if it's very volatile, that can make forecasting profitability difficult. How do you mitigate returns? It's actually not that difficult to forecast returns because it's really very much driven by product mix. And we forecast very well what the product mix is. So just to give you an example, anything that's stretchy will have a lower return rate than something that's rigid. So woven dresses, for example, will have a higher return rate than jumpers. So we're able to forecast what our product mix will be, and then therefore we're able to forecast what our returns will be. The thing that's been different over the last two years has been COVID, where for a period of time when consumers were locked down, returns rates fell artificially low. 
But it was really just down to consumers not going out so much, being more considered in what they purchased and not wanting to go to the post office really as much as anything else. So we saw artificially low return rates, but we very quickly realized that the minute lockdown restrictions lifted, returns rates just normalized. Coming back to the supply chain issues, which you described how you dealt with them, would you say those issues have stabilized or still getting worse or is getting easier? I mean, you having to adopt that agile response to a sort of ever-changing scenery of logistics or is it stabilizing? I think you have to adopt an agile response to everything in terms of running a business. We've had a pandemic, we've had a war, we've had supply chain. You know, there's always something, isn't there? We never go, okay, that's sorted now. Let's sit back and relax. We always compare it to our old lives in terms of running a news desk. It's very strategic. You're very planned to inch within an inch of your life, but you're also agile enough to change and react all the time. And it's also not being scared of being able to change and react all the time, knowing that that's just part of what you do. Can you just talk us through how the lockdown experience worked for you and where it's left you? So our strategy was always to broaden the product range into all women's wear categories. We were never going to just be formal wear and workwear. We started off with much more workwear and dresses because we knew this was the main thing that women were finding difficult to buy. So that's why we started there. But we always planned to progress into other areas. So just before the pandemic, we had literally just launched denim, which was brilliant because people bought a lot of denim throughout the pandemic. And we'd also just started off first forage into loungewear. But our DNA, as you said, at that point was quite smart dressing at that point. And obviously, people were looking for much more casual clothing through the pandemic. So we just accelerated the diversification, basically. So, you know, we were in a really huge growth period pre-pandemic, but we did for a period pull back on our customer acquisition when the pandemic hit. So one, we could preserve cash for a while while we worked out what was happening. A few months into that, we also then started to really know the psyche of what women were thinking and feeling in lockdown. I think you've been getting your brands into third-party platforms for a while now, but it really seems like it's ramping up. You've got big retailers like Very, Next, M&S handling your product. Was this always part of the plan? So I think our own site was really going from strength to strength and we started to get noticed by third parties and we just started being approached by several third parties, a lot of different third parties. And we really took our time to assess the opportunities and decide who we wanted to work with. And we decided really we we wanted to work with the ones that had scale and whose customer base was most aligned to our product. You know, when companies like Marks and Spencers come and knock at your door as a, a relatively new startup, it was quite a pinch me moment for Ali and I. And it's quite a humbling experience, really, in a way. I think it was always potentially part of our strategy. But at the time that we started Sasanda, I mean, MS weren't selling other people's brands. Next were not the platform that they are now for other people's brands. So it's rapidly become part of our strategy as we have seen what traditionally were retailers selling their own product 
rapidly become large-scale marketplaces for other people's brands. So we're currently with Next, Marks and Spencers, Very and John Lewis. They're really giving us incremental sales. They've helped us get to profitability because every sale is profitable from the get-go with the third parties. It's given us brand awareness and it's also increasing our buying power with suppliers. Is it the same product that they're selling that you're selling on your own website? They don't sell everything that we sell. What we give them is we give each third party has a smaller selection of our range. So they currently have probably about 15% of our overall range is with each third party. But we also sell all those garments on our own site. You've got to be careful, presumably the tail doesn't wag the dog. I think what's important is not to be overly reliant upon any one third party. So it's not our strategy to have a scattergun approach and be stocked on lots of different third parties, but it is our approach to have well thought through strategically the right partners to work with, with all of them being you know, almost equally important, I guess, with each other. In terms of how the model works, it's a concession model anyway, with Next M&S and John Lewis it is. So we're in charge anyway of our stock. That stock remains our product. So it's down to us to decide what stock we give them, how much stock we give them, what the range is that we give them. We work with them, obviously, to get their advice on what they think will work for their customers. But actually what we found is what tends to be bestsellers on our own site are bestsellers for them as well. A little extra question here comes to mind, which is how easy will it be for your suppliers to grow? Because these are quite big retailers and one could envisage, well, your buying power going up, but also the challenge then of having to get these suppliers to scale up. How do you feel about their capability there? I think we've always worked with suppliers that we know can grow with us because we knew we were going to be on a huge growth trajectory. So we've made sure that we've chosen suppliers who do have the capacity to grow with us. And if in any areas we need further supply, we're always looking at that really far and ahead. So we've just taken on another three people in our sourcing team because we know the growth that we are experiencing. We need to make sure that those suppliers are brought in now for two years hence. Obviously, you came to the market quite soon after the business was founded, much sooner than most companies come. How have you found the process of becoming and being a public company? What's been good about it and what's been difficult? We like it, I think, is the first thing that we would say. We think we took the right decision. So we were only just over a year old when we came to the market. And we did it because we were at the point where we'd proven the concept, things were going really well, and we needed access to capital to grow our database and really invest in acquiring customers. And we had a number of different ways that we could have gone in terms of investment and interested parties. We had private individuals wanting to invest We had venture capital companies being interested and we had the opportunity to do a reverse merger into a cash shell on AIM and decided to go that route. And we definitely think we made the right decision. It's given us access to ongoing capital, but I think it also suits Ali and I as people. And I think it's suited where we've come from and our backgrounds. So that suits us in that sense that, you know, we're left to get on with the running of Sasanda. And we're very comfortable with dealing with investors, 
how open we need to be, doing the presentations to investors, how well governed and well ordered we need to be, because we're like that as people anyway. You know, one road could have been that we had an individual private investor investing in us. And I think it wouldn't have suited us as people. We run quite a democratic business, I would describe it as. And having one main lead investor who then starts making all the decisions perhaps can be a bit willful or go off at a whim, I think would never have suited us as people. We think through everything and we we try to make the best decisions by gathering all the data and the information and then making very quick decisions. But we do that in a very democratic fashion rather than any kind of knee-jerk reactive way. So I think it's very much suited us. The difficulties would be when you're an early stage business, you're playing out everything. You know, everything you do is played out in the public domain. Everybody can, you know, all those investors see everything that you're doing at all the time, really, because you've got to be completely open. That's quite challenging when you're a very small business. I think the first year we were on AIM, I think we turned over a, a million pounds, didn't we? So we've gone from a million to 29 million turnover in a few very short years. There's not really been any negatives. We genuinely enjoy being a public company. Clearly now at the point of breaking through into profitability, how does this sort of that trajectory has, has played out? How does that compare with how you saw things back in 2015, 2016? Probably be unrealistic to think that any startup business plays out exactly as it does on a blank piece of paper. I think I remember somebody along the way saying to us, whatever your business plan is, forget it because it will never turn out that way. I think actually what's quite gratifying for us is it largely has turned out as we envisaged it turning out. The most important part of that is the opportunity that we saw, the vision that we had, the execution of that. We've never wavered from that and we've proven out the opportunity that was there and that vision has never changed. You know, We've not had to completely shift our business model or the customers we're targeting or what we're delivering. It's very much played out in that way. And the fact that it was going to be very high growth business has played out as we saw it happening. I mean, I think the, you know, the pandemic coming in the middle of all that, we were on a very high growth trajectory. Arguably, you know, if we hadn't have had those six months of cash, you know, we preserved cash, as Ali said, for six months. We stopped investing in customer acquisition while we diversified the product range that probably created a hiatus that maybe we'd have reached profitability earlier. Who knows? We'll never know, will we? But, you know, we always knew that once we got the scale, the profitability would come. And that's certainly proven out having now turned that corner with the last six months being profitable. Your answer reminded me of, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> So you're unusual in being a business with co-chief executives. So the obvious question is, which one of you is really the boss? <laughs> Do you know, we get asked this so much. I think the thing is, we're both equal. As Julie just mentioned, we do run a very democratic business. So both being co-CEOs, we've never found difficult at all. I mean, it helps, obviously, that we'd worked together for 10 years prior to this. So we'd already had a tight partnership before we started this business. So we knew that the partnership would work because it already worked for 10 years. But I think for us, having two of you, it's a bonus. It's not a negative in any way. I mean, it forces us to 
debate and discuss things because as most things in life, there's no right or wrong. It's generally a balance of judgment. So I think, you know, anything complicated or difficult, we discuss the pros and cons together and we make a decision together. But, you know, it's never about ego. It's about what is best for the business. So it wouldn't work if you had either of us with an ego who wanted to do what we wanted to do. It's never been like that for the two of us. And it's also meant we've employed people who think that way too. And I think, you know, a lot of people do ask us, oh, is it because you're women? And it's not. It's just about the right partnership. Is there anything you've radically disagreed on? I don't think we have, have we, Julie? No. We've never had a big row or anything like that. It just seems to work. We don't really disagree because we both want the same thing. You might comment a product differently, you know, like one of us might say, I think that product will work. And the other one might say, I'm not sure if that product will work. But that's as tough as it gets, I think, really. In the prep for this conversation, I did ask Rosemary whether she had invested or come across a business that has succeeded with co-chief executives. I can't think of one that's been noticeably successful, present company accepted. Down to us then, isn't it, to be the first? (laughs) (laughs) What will things be like for you in 10 years' time? I think what we'd say is that our vision is always was and remains that we can be one of the biggest women's wear brands initially in the UK. So to be a household name and one of the biggest brands, but also ultimately internationally as well. So I think the cultural shift, as we would call it, which is basically women as they get older in terms of actual age are not ageing mentally it's not just women obviously it's men as well but we're talking about women so you know as they get into their 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s women at 70 wear the same clothes that women at 30 do and we don't feel like we're aging and that same cultural phenomenon exists worldwide it's not just in the UK that people are like that Sandra is at the forefront of that big cultural change in society. So we see the opportunity that we've identified and found here in the UK also existing internationally. So we see a huge opportunity for Sasanda to be a big international women's wear brand as well. What have you changed your mind about on this journey? As a result of this journey, do you look at the world differently? I don't think we've changed our minds in terms of, you know, in terms of the customer opportunity, And we've done exactly what we set out to do. I think this journey has been a really interesting one and will continue to be so. I think in starting and running this business, we've seen two ends of the spectrum, really. I think the one end has been extreme terror at times. And, you know, white terror, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and knowing that you can text the other one and she'll be awake as well. And we did that quite a lot in the early days. And so we've had that one side of running a business, but coupled with that is, you know, there's absolutely no room for failure because you're looking after other people's money. You know, we had 40 investors from day one who were counting on us and that is an awesome responsibility. But at the same time, it absolutely gives you that get from the get-go that you cannot possibly... I mean, we always had utter belief in ourselves, but you can't fail as well because you've got other people's money and people's trust in you. But I think that's the other end of the spectrum that we found of running the business as well is that the utter belief and kindness and support of other people has been quite overwhelming, really. 
um, having those people that really believe in you and have really kind of been, you know, the wind beneath our wings, especially from people who've done it themselves. It's almost like a club of people who've been through it and know how difficult it can be. And as a result, you know, they're there for you in a way, you know, because they think, you know, I, I want to help you through it. And I think that's been quite humbling. Is that media experience, how you communicate and listen to your customer, do you think that's given you an advantage? I think it's given us a massive advantage, actually. We just believe if you listen to your customer, you will always get it right and she votes with a purse and just be open to what she wants because our entire backgrounds in media was reacting every single week to get that product right and they would vote with their purses in the corner shop if you got that front cover wrong because your sales would go up and down and you knew about it if you're you know if your sales went down you know because you got your front cover wrong so it it makes you hypersensitive I think to customer behavior in every possible way so I I do think it's been a huge benefit for us the experience that we've got in understanding customer behavior and how we communicate with her I think as well you know our marketing is one of the real key strengths of the business the product's brilliant but also we take fantastic photographs that are about selling a lifestyle and customers really emotionally engage with it and the way we communicate the language we use our emails how we communicate with our customers on a daily basis all that is because it's in mine and Ali's DNA to really communicate with customers like we are a media company we are almost part media company and part retailer so it's using all that skill base i think to sell clothes that comes across that's very clear well i was just listening to that i'm just wondering if you could say a bit more about how you find new customers obviously i'm not talking here about the next and the mns's piece but your own business your own website etc because I'm thinking it's a bit different from when you were doing the magazine, which I'm guessing at the time was a, more of a physical product. When you're selling a magazine, obviously, you've already got your route to market because you've got 50-odd thousand retailers that sell magazines. So all you have to do really at the end of the day is get that magazine on the shelf and then make it stand out. So with Look, when we first launched it, obviously, you did have to build awareness around it. With an e-commerce brand, then you're completely right. You are starting from scratch and nobody is going to find you by accident on the on the internet. You've got to go out and acquire those customers. We've really refined and honed the marketing strategy over the years. And we've got quite a unique combination, I think, of ways that we acquire customers that works for our demographic. And we use quite a lot of traditional media, which has worked really well for us. So we use TV, but we run TV like it's a digital campaign and we have very clear ROI on it. So for example, we know exactly which slots, which time of day, which programs, which channels to acquire the quality customers that then become repeat customers. So we use TV, which drives big brand awareness, lots of people to the site. We use glossy brochures, The irony of that was not lost on us when we did glossy brochures for the first time and realized how successful they were for our customers. There we were, you know, having left print media and we were using print media as a way of recruiting customers. They work fantastically well as a combination with TV. So people will come from TV, sign up for a brochure, get a brochure land on their mat, and it's a fantastic way of converting customers. Those people also will sign up for email. And so we use email as well to convert them. And we use social. But specifically in our case, Instagram and 
Facebook are incredibly important for acquiring new customers. And then celebrities have been a great way of converting customers and building brand awareness. So we work with a lot of celebrities who wear our clothes. We don't pay celebrities. They wear our clothes because they want to. And that also has given credence, I suppose, and credibility to the brand. Consumers see celebrities wearing our clothes multiple times. And then we do other things like just general digital marketing, paid campaigns, affiliate marketing. But our our real core is social, glossy brochures and TV. The fact that I've never seen a Sasanda TV advert is testament to the fact that you're very well targeted on your key customer demographics. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Money well spent, I'm sure. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think you really brought the brand and the business and the opportunity you have to life. And I will definitely continue to follow your progress with interest and hopefully we can maybe have another conversation and in due course thank you for inviting us yeah thank you very much for inviting us on jeremy thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this episode of in the company of mavericks please subscribe at our website in the company of mavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes